0: Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. I think we covered this in Bible study this week, if you're a part of one of our Bible studies, uh, towards the end of chapter 1. I missed this week, I'll admit. Uh, We had some sick kids and still do. And so uh, I missed this conversation. I I was banking on the Bible study guys to help me with my sermon prep. And then uh, I had to miss, so I was on my own. But I have loved being a part of one of our Bible studies. I feel like I... It's a place for me to walk in and I'm not like pastor. I'm just one of the Bible study guys and I just learn and these guys come prepared and they study well and God really meets us as we open his word and pray and ask for help. And that's what we're going to do this morning. First John chapter one verse nine says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, there's a lot packed into these few words. There's a lot that's hard for us to do. There's a lot that's hard for us to comprehend. But would you meet us here in 1 John 1, 9 this morning? I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would teach us. I pray that these people would receive a better sermon than they're about to hear because your Holy Spirit Moves it from our heads down into our hearts, God. We love you and we're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. If we asked and everyone answered honestly, who in this room has ever needed forgiveness? We would all say me. If we asked and everyone answered honestly, who's needed to give forgiveness? We'd all say There might be things right now you need to give forgiveness for, someone in your life. There might be things right now you need forgiveness for, for something in your life. Forgiveness is a common human experience to need it and to need to give it. This morning, I want us to look at four questions about forgiveness. We've been looking at these kind of just very simple prayers leading up to Easter, and then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at the prayer, resurrect us us life again. But this Sunday, we're looking at this, forgive us. Simple prayer, right? It's in the Lord's prayer. And yet, it's so rich in meaning to ask God to forgive us. What are we asking God to do when we ask Him to forgive us? Um, maybe when someone apologizes to you, you have been trained through habit, and maybe you've never given it much thought to respond with it's okay. I'm so sorry. It's okay. And this morning, uh, I'd like to just destroy that response for you. I hope that that's never a response you give again. Because by the very definition of someone offering an apology and acknowledging they've done something wrong, we must say it's not okay. Uh, If it was okay, there would be no apology necessary. So when we say forgive us, or when someone apologizes, often an apology will say, hey, please forgive me. What are we asking them to do? Forgiveness is is deep and it's rich, and yet it's something that's also so simple in the Christian faith and in the gospel message. We recited it in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. What is it that we believe in? So we're gonna look at four questions this morning, or four kind of ideas. What makes forgiveness necessary? What makes forgiveness hard? What makes forgiveness possible? And what makes forgiveness personal? What makes it necessary? And then what makes it hard? What makes it possible? It's hard, but it's possible. What makes it possible? Okay, that's great ideas, but what makes forgiveness personal? Let, let's start at the top this morning. What makes forgiveness necessary? All roads, I think, uh, lead us back to Genesis 1-3. to If you're in the Bible, you keep making your way back, trying to find the foundation for whatever you're reading. You're going to end up in the first few chapters of Genesis. And I think Genesis 1-3 to actually can help us make sense of our stories. Because if we ask, what were we made for? What do we live for? We find in Genesis 1 and 2 that we were created for, like Adam and Eve, they were created for intimacy with God. They were created for a a trusting relationship with God. But then we find in Genesis 3, they made a choice. What choice did they make? On the surface in the text, it says they chose to eat fruit of a tree. They chose to eat fruit off of a tree, and it changed everything. Why was that such a monumental decision that changed the course of human history because God gave them one rule and it was don't eat the fruit of that tree. Now, what was wrong with the tree that God said don't eat the fruit of it? Well, that's missing the point. The point is Adam and Eve were intended to live in total dependence and trust on God alone. Their design was to have an intimate, loving, and therefore trusting relationship. And so the tree stood in the midst of the garden as an ever-present physical test. Will you trust me? And trust the boundaries that I've set. Will you choose to find your life in me and in me alone? Was what God posed to Adam and Eve. But they made the choice not to. What choice did they make? To try to find life independent of God. To try to make a way to live and have the good life. Have joy, have satisfaction, have contentment, have provision. Apart from God and His ways. They decided to try to do life apart from God. So what were the consequences? Immediately, they realized that they were naked. They hid. They got fig leaves and sewed them on them to cover up themselves. And ultimately, the consequences were death. Now, how does this make sense of our story? I think it makes sense of an experience that every single one of us in this room have. We also, like Adam and Eve, have a sense of being exposed and vulnerable, like we're subject to some sort of judgment, and we don't measure up. I think this is a common human experience, whether you're a Christian or not. So if you don't subscribe to this book, or the creed we read, or any of the songs we've sung, I still think every person who walks this planet wrestles with some version of guilt, shame, and or regret. I think it's a common human experience to then try to hide and cover up with our very own versions of fig leaves. The human tendency to curate our lives and our images, our appearances and our identities shows that we have this this inner realization that there's something in us that we want to hide. We have some sense of being guilty that's part of what Paul's getting at in the early chapters of Romans where he says, fine, you don't live under the law, I'll judge you by your own law, by your conscience. Those who live without the law will perish without the law. He says, you don't need the law because you have an inner sense of guilt. Every single one of us do. We have an inner sense that something's missing, that we somehow haven't measured up. Genesis 3 make sense of that reality by showing us that we feel guilt and shame because we've turned our back on the one who was intended to give us the security that is the antidote to shame. The acceptance that's the antidote to shame. The love that would make guilt and shame disappear forever. We were intended to live with him, yet we've turned our back on him and tried to do life another way, and we feel this hole in us. We've turned our back on God. So when we say, what makes forgiveness necessary, I think we could have started a lot of different ways to get there. Many, if you go pick up a theology textbook, it would probably start with something like the holiness of God. Absolutely. Because God is the priority. Logically, biblically, God is first. In the beginning, God. But I also think the other place that's helpful for us to start is with our own experience. Because in our own experience, I, I don't really have to convince any of you that you felt guilty at some point in your life. That you felt regret, you felt shame, you felt what Adam and Eve had felt in the garden. Like I've done something I'm not supposed to do, I'm fundamentally wrong because of it, something is wrong with me, I, I cannot be repaired, and you feel the sense of falling short. So the feeling of needing forgiveness I think is, is pretty common. Forgiveness is necessary because if we're going to have a relationship with God, that must be repaired. The relationship between us who've turned our back on God, just like in any human relationship. If you were to turn your back on someone you're in a relationship with, like in a marriage, and choose to go have an affair, leave your family, leave your wife, you couldn't just come right back. There needs to be a repair there, or there's not going to be the trust. There's not going to be the intimacy. There's not going to be the love. Why is forgiveness necessary? Because the relationship between us and God has been broken. Genesis 1 to 3 makes sense of that for us. So, okay, forgiveness is necessary, but what is it that makes forgiveness hard? I'm not talking about us forgiving other people. I'm talking about God forgiving us. What makes it hard? You might say, it shouldn't be hard. I thought that's what God does. Right? I, I I thought God was just supposed to forgive me. For my sin. Well, I think forgiveness is hard, and I'll use a little bit of the story of someone you might have heard of. Her name is Rachel Den Hollander. Now, if you know Rachel Den Hollander, it's probably because uh, just a few years ago, she was the first person to publicly accuse Dr. Larry Nasser of sexual assault. He was the U.S. women's gymnastics team doctor for a very long time, and he had a wicked and evil pattern of sexually assaulting underage gymnasts, that he would cloak it as some sort of sick treatment, and it went on for years. And Rachel Den Hollander was a follower of Jesus who grew up, went to law school, and began to champion the cause of bringing Larry Nassar to justice. Since then, she's become an advocate for abuse survivors all around the country. And she gets maligned because of it by people who claim the name of Christ. She is an Orthodox, could worship in this church, recite the creed, she could lead groups and Bible studies. But because she speaks truth to power about abuse, she is, is hated by people doing exactly what I'm doing this morning. Shame on them. Why? Because she's trying to bring justice. And do you know what people ask her more often than any other question? I've heard her in interviews say this. People want to ask because they hear my faith. Either, well, shouldn't you forgive? Or people who don't share her faith say, how could you ever forgive? But she has just in one short phrase, I think she sums up the what makes forgiveness so hard. She's wrestled with this. She's been a follower of Jesus. She's experienced Incredible injustice. And she says, a judge that does not punish evil is not loving. She connects in just a few words, justice and love. That is what makes forgiveness hard. She says that God's justice and his wrath against evil is actually an overflow of his love and his mercy. Now, we might hear those two and wonder, are they opposite? Are they opposite? In fact, there's been theologians in history that have actually separated the Old Testament and the New Testament and said, we're really dealing with two different gods. It's the Marcionite heresy. If you want to know the name of it, you can go look it up. The god of the Old Testament was mean and bad and just, and wrathful, the God of the New Testament is a God of love, and what that can lead some people to do today, so you can be on uh, the lookout for Marcy Night Heresy, is to say, throw away the Old Testament. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament to quote a local pastor of a megachurch in Alpharetta. We don't need the Old Testament. We throw it away because God's mean in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we find a God of love, and it's totally different. Well, I'd like to ask today, are they at odds? Are God's loving grace and his wrathful justice actually at odds with each other? Are his grace and his justice opposites? I, I'm actually going to argue this morning that no, they're not. I agree with Rachel Hollander that God's justice and wrath is an overflow of his love. The theology, the, the area of, of, of theology that would deal with this is something that theologians call the simplicity of God. God is a simple being. Now, here's what that means. The word is simple, and it's not necessarily a simple concept, but I think you can, you can grasp with me. Complex being is made up of many parts. It's kind of like you and I in some ways. We have these different feelings, and oftentimes they're at odds with each other. Like at times I'm, I'm happy, and at other times I'm sad. At times I love someone, and other times I am ready to never speak again. God is not composed of parts, that could ever be at odds with each other. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He's not composed of parts that are ever at odds. He does not consist of these many complex parts that would make him struggle internally with which attributes to display and which attributes to suppress. That is not the kind of being God is. Rather, he operates at all times in perfect unity with all of his attributes. So God is never looking at, when we say God is love and he loves you, that doesn't mean he has all this anger towards you, that his love is a little bit better than, so he can push all that anger back. God has one piece of his character. What is he like? He is God. And to describe him, we describe these attributes and all these different ways that God acts towards us. But really, at the end of the day, we have to say these are all one. God is a simple being. This is exactly what Rachel Denhollander is talking about when she connects God's love and his mercy to his justice and his wrath. His love and his justice are not opposites that he's wrestling between, like some pendulum that is swinging back and forth, and we're never quite sure what, which end we're going to experience today. But listen to what Tim Keller says about these two, what we often see as opposites. we at opposite. Listen to what Tim Keller says about them. God only gets angry at the evil. Destroying the things he loves. God only gets angry at the things that destroy what he loves. In that sense, it would actually not be right for us to say that one of God's attributes is wrath. It's actually not true. His wrath is a response to the core attribute, I would argue, of his love. He says, Tim Keller goes on to say that creation and the human race that he made for his own glory and for our happiness, those are the things that he loves. The law of God that's summed up by Jesus in Matthew 22 is actually just the command to love properly, to love proportionately and to love completely. And any failure to love in this way destroys God's creation, it destroys other people, and ultimately it'll destroy our own heart. Those are all things that God made and God loves. So God's wrath on our disobedience to his law is both a call to love and an expression of his love. God's love and his justice are not at odds. They complement one another. God's wrathful justice is his response to anything that damages what he loves. Jeremy Treat is a pastor in Los Angeles, and he wrote a book on the atonement, the death of Christ and what he accomplished. And, And in that book, That's coming out this year. He says, wrath only exists where sin exists. Therefore, we should uphold the priority of God's love and then the necessity of God's wrath that safeguards his love in a fallen world. Now, we would all admit that there are appropriate times for you and I to get angry, right? We would all acknowledge that there is a righteous, proper anger. Why? Because anger is an emotional response to injustice. Anger is how we respond when we see that something wrong is happening. So, to say that we don't like justice, I don't like a God of justice. I don't like to talk about God's wrath. That's the height of privilege. Do you know why? Because only one who has never had wrongs done to them would say that they don't want justice. Talk to the oppressed and the slave talk to the outcast and the downcast, talk to those who've been wronged and abused and hurt, do you know what you'll hear? Justice is very important to them. They hope and long for the fact that God will make all things right one day. Uh, Dr. Esau McCauley is a Bible professor at Wheaton College, and he wrote a book called A Reading While Black, and it's a history of black Uh, church, and black theologians reading an interpretation of the Bible. And he talks about so many fascinating things. And he talked about when he was growing up, he was raised in a family of faith. And then he went to a predominantly white college and had religion professors that told him, hey, if we're going to set you free in your race, man, throw off the Bible. And he went, hold on a minute. That Bible is the very thing that gave my people hope. Because as they were wronged as slaves, their hope was that Jesus would come and be a God of justice and make everything right. So we know that it's okay to be angry because it's how we respond to injustice. We would say anyone who doesn't want justice has probably never been wronged. But it's important to say that God's wrath and justice are not like ours. He's never moody, He's always measured. He's never wrathful out of hate or indifference. He is always wrathful out of a deep sense of love. This is his wrath and his love working together. And it's his deep sense of love for his creation that actually leads him to be wrathful against everything that stands against his creation. This is what makes forgiveness hard for us to grasp. Because God is both just and holy and righteous And his wrath is very real, but he is a God of love. In our minds, we see these pitted against each other, and we go, how does this work? Thank you for wading through some of those uh, weightier theological categories with me, but I think they're really important. And I don't walk through that lightly. I I try to make it in a way that we can all have a conversation about it, but it's important if we're going to understand what forgiveness really is. God has a real sense of justice towards wrongs done. What that means is, for God to forgive you, He does not look at you and say, it's okay. Because it's not. His wrath against all that He loves exists. So, how is God going to show you His love, but also not just wipe away His wrath that exists against the fact that we've turned our back on Him? That forgiveness is hard. God is both of these things. What are we going to do? What makes forgiveness now possible? What makes forgiveness possible? Rachel Denhollander, uh, in the courtroom, spoke to Larry Nasser. And she said, and I quote, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Rachel DeHondre says that forgiveness is a a personal release of bitterness and a desire for vengeance. But justice is holding someone to an external standard. And she argues that both of these can happen. She's written on this. She has taught on this. She has spoke on this. How, as Christians, do we maintain both justice and forgiveness for people that have wronged us? What I want to ask this morning is how is forgiveness possible if God himself is committed to do both of those? How is it possible for us, for God to release us from the debt we owe and for God to still hold to the standard of righteous and pure love for him alone because we don't have that love. So we cannot earn our own forgiveness. Well, I believe God's loving grace and his wrathful justice find fulfillment in the cross of Christ. John Stott wrote um, maybe the best book ever on the cross of, it's called the cross of Christ. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. We put ourselves in the place of God. The essence of sin, man substituting himself or herself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself On the cross, Jesus holds this tension between these two things that we see at odds. God's love and God's justice. If you want to see the one single act that brings every bit of God's character to the fore, look at the cross. Because God is uncompromising in his commitment to righteousness. He looks at you and the demand is perfection. Perfection in what? Perfection in your love for him and for others. And guess what he finds? That it's not there. And God says, anything that stands in the way of what I love, I'm going to have to punish, even if that means you. So what does Christ do on the cross? He goes and pays the debt for us. Forgiveness from God is when he looks at the debt you owe, the debt of love, and he actually absorbs the cost himself. It's not simply deleted or erased or wiped away, and it's not paid for by some outside benefactor. It's paid by the one To whom the debt was owed. That is what Jesus did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus takes the wrath of God on himself so that you and I can walk free. That's what makes forgiveness possible. The problem with all of this talk and all of this idea of forgiveness and justice is that the problem of sin and evil in the world is not just out there, it's in here. So the punishment that God's pouring out, it would eventually come for us. But on the cross of Christ, Jesus took all of that for us. That's what makes forgiveness possible. It's because of what Jesus has done standing in our place. God doesn't just divert his punishment in a way that he says, I'm just not going to pour it out. I'll give you grace today. I'm just not going to give you what you deserve. And God just bottles it up. It's still poured out just on someone else in your place. So what is it that makes this forgiveness personal for us, though? We've talked about a lot of ideas, a lot of theology. We've made our way to the cross of Christ. But what makes forgiveness personal? When you come face to face with your own failures, your own sin, how do you respond? More specifically, when you come face to face with the very reasons Christ died for you. Your sin. The things you need to be forgiven for. When you come face to face with those, does it move you closer to God or further away from God? How do you respond when you come face to face with your own failures and your own sin? I I found there's a few different ways I handle that. And a few ways all of us handle that. Hey, one, circumstances. Gosh, today was just a bad day. Don't we caveat a lot of apology like that? Hey, I'm sorry. Today was just really tough. Are you sorry or was today tough? (laughs) Because those are two different things. If you're sorry, then we're putting the blame on you. If the day was tough, we're putting the blame on the circumstances. Hey, I had a lot going on. I was just really stressed or tired or sad or mad. Hey, those are definitely influences on us. But I wonder if sometimes we come face to face with our failures and we put the blame on circumstances. Or I wonder if we blame others. Gosh, my parents raised me, my friends, my spouse, my coworkers, I wonder if we turn to distraction, right? We start feeling a sense of guilt and a sense of sin, a sense of I need to be forgiven, and we try to distract ourselves with something else to watch, somewhere else to scroll. We never get off the screen. Maybe we go and we dive into a hobby or a book. We try to go hang out with people to get our mind off things. Or how about this? This is a a good theology word, atonement, but not in the Jesus way. When we start feeling a sense of guilt, when we commit wrongs, something in us tries to atone for it. We try to make up for it. I know I did something wrong, so I, I got to go figure out how to make up for this, right? Or what about repentance? Like a fleshly repentance. I, I promise I'll never do this again. I've changed. Or false guilt to go in the other direction. We feel. Way too much guilt compared to what's happened, and we crush ourselves underneath the weight of something that we were never intended to carry. But what does God say in 1 John 1 9? If we confess honest, authentic, and open before God, we don't have to try to hide our wrongs. We don't have to try to atone for our sins ourselves and make up for it. We don't have to try to promise we're going to do better next time with some fake forget- or repentance that we really don't have the strength to do, anyways. We can actually experience freedom by coming to God because of what Christ has done and saying, God, this is it. We are free to name in the presence of God our sin. And what do we find there? No punishment, no condemnation, no debt that you still owe. Romans 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Put that to memory because if you are in Christ, that is you. And when you feel the crushing weight of guilt and you wonder, what in the world am I going to do with this wrong that I've done? You can come to Jesus and you can confess. You can come to brothers and sisters that you love and they love you and you can confess to them and ask for help to change. It's only the highest and the deepest and the widest of loves that would ever lead someone to do this for us, to die in our place, to take a punishment that they didn't deserve, take it for us. Romans 5 says that someone would scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps they might die for a good person, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's that saying? Christ died for us when we were at our most unlovable. You see that? While we were still sinners, what is sin? Failing to love God. While we were not loving, unloving towards God, God showed his deepest love for us. So to experience personally forgiveness from God is to come to Christ and realize that there is no sin, no failure, no wrong that he failed to pay for. Every single thing that you're wondering, if it pushes the bounds of his forgiveness, you are wrong. Everything you're wondering and you feel shame about and you're going back to these fig leaves thinking, how do I cover? How do I hide? How can I, how can I push this out of the back of my mind? How can I forget about this? How can I make up for it by doing more good in another area of my life? And guess what? There is grace enough in Jesus. Why? Because on the cross, He paid for it all. There's nothing left unpaid for you. The only way you'll experience this personally is if you come to God in prayer and you confess and name those things. Now, I'm not advocating for a lifelong rerun. Maybe I've mentioned before, I've talked to someone who was in their 70s in their last leg of their life and God had really brought personal renewal into their life. This person said, I just feel like I need to go back from the time I was a child and try to remember every wrong I've ever done so that I can... I actually don't, I actually don't think that's what God's inviting you to do. To go and try to look under every uh, rock and figure out every single thing you've ever done in your whole life. Because Psalm 103 is also true. As far as the east is from the west, those are directions, not places. He's removed your sin from you. The point is that when you come, there's actually not, you're actually not focused on your sin when you come to Christ. You're focused on Christ. There's a self-forgetfulness when you come into his presence because you realize the depth of his love and the riches of his grace that he pours out on you. When you come to Christ, you can be assured that he's not shocked by your sin. Like we just sang, your sins might be many, but his mercy is more. As we come to a close today, I want to invite us just to reflect on a few questions. In an attitude of prayer. You can close your eyes, bow your heads, you can get on your knees, you can come up here if you'd like, but um, do you have a sense of guilt and shame in you right now? It could be over a specific thing, it could be just a lifelong struggle. A feeling some sense of shame, like there's a part of me that I always feel like I need to hide because, gosh, I'm so terrified of it hey, I'm really guilty because I know I've done something that's wrong. I have something I really regret in my life. Do you have that sense? Do you feel an instinct to hide and cover? What do your fig leaves look like? I invite you this morning to tell God all about it. as you discover those things and God brings those things to light in you right now and you bring them to his presence and and pray these things out, think about this. Have, Have you tasted the perfect and complete forgiveness of Christ? Is there anything that he can't forgive? Is there anything that he failed to pay for? Is your sin stronger than his work on the cross? No. So God, we come and we pray this morning. Forgive us. You don't ignore wrongs that are done. What you do is you send Jesus to die in our place so that we don't have to die. And we can have life forever. And we can experience total forgiveness. I pray that you'd set us free by that this morning, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.